Good morning, everyone. It's uh, always good to be able to give Pastor Victor an opportunity to get away and see family, and um, that's where he is this weekend. Uh, he's, uh, I think, in Missouri visiting family, so hopefully he's watching online. Uh, and if so, we miss you, Vic, and hope you're doing well. Uh, we're going to continue uh, where, where Pastor Victor has been leading us through in 1 Corinthians. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 5, so you can go ahead and turn there and get ready. Um, I do want to uh, go back to chapter 4 for a couple of things, just to kind of, um, just to kind of set, the, uh, set the tone for how we're going to look at these passages uh, the, the kind of the, the overarching theme, I don't know if the theme is the right word, um, the overarching kind of paradigm or perspective that I believe Scripture wants us to bring into this chapter and the following chapters and um, the ones after, um, is that of Paul, Paul not just, not just um, writing to a church, not just challenging believers, not just uh, correcting and saying, do this and don't do that, okay, but, but uh, the perspective is of Paul as a loving father. Uh, and Paul is going to speak to the, he's going to write to the Corinthians in, in, in a paternal role with a paternal tone um, because his heart, as Pastor Victor has pointed out, his heart for the Corinthian church is one of paternal love for a community of faith that he helped birth. And so if we go back to chapter 4, in verse 14, um, re- remember this, this verse as we go through the next couple chapters. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Um, there's this word he uses there to describe the Corinthians. He says, my beloved children. And that word beloved, the, the Greek word for it is used, Paul uses it four different times throughout the course of this book uh, to, to describe the, the Corinthian church. The word is aga, agabateas, agabateas. Um, and that should sound familiar to those of us who have you know, heard so many sermons and studies about the different kinds of love in Scripture because the kind of love that God has for us is, can anyone say what? what agape, yeah. Um, and so agape is that unconditional love that only comes from God. And Paul uses a form of that word to describe the, the Corinthian church um, as being worthy, as being the, the recipients of that love. It means to be beloved. It means to be esteemed. It means that you are dear, you are even maybe favorite, and you are worthy of love. And he says, I don't write these things to shame you. I'm not trying to humiliate you. I'm not trying to just make you feel bad. I'm not trying to, to control you or to manipulate you, he says, um, but to warn you. As my beloved children, I'm, I'm trying to caution you away from the behaviors, from the ideas, from the deceptions, the deceptive ideas that will lead you down a path of destruction, that will lead you away from truth in Christ. And so without that framework, without that way of reading these next couple of chapters and understanding Paul's heart, it's very easy to read some of the things he writes as coming across as, 
as overly harsh or overly judgmental or, or overly condemning, okay? But we have to remember that for Paul, it has nothing to do with himself. In fact, uh, in chapter 3 and verses 5 through 7, he's, he's, he's addressing this, this debate about, you know, is Paul better? Is Apollos better? Is Peter better? Who's better? Uh, and Paul is essentially going to say, hey, I'm, I'm nothing, Okay, Paul is willing to become nothing. He's like, the name of Paul doesn't matter. In chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, he says, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? We're just ministers, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants, talking about himself, is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. And so Paul's... He's not coming at them with some agenda where he's like, how dare you betray me, you know, after all I've done for you. Um, he's saying, look, it, it, it doesn't matter to me what becomes of my name. I love you as a father, as a good father loves their children. And it is out of that love that I, I'm heartbroken over the things that I have heard about you. And I don't say this to shame you. I don't say this just to, like, all of us know what it feels like to have a guilt trip, right? <laughs> um, and maybe some of us have had parents who are, who are a lot better at that than others, <laughs> um, and we tend to kind of carry those patterns into our parenting as well, so there's a cautionary tale. Um, we know what it feels like to be under a guilt trip, and so often we read Scripture, and we read uh, how, the, how, how the servants of God wrote Scripture, and we feel like, oh, I just feel guilty every time I read this, this condemnation after condemnation, and Paul's saying, that's not, the, that's not my heart. That's not the goal. If, if you're going to walk away from this and all you do and all, all you walk away with is feeling guilty and terrible about yourself, Paul's saying, I'm not writing this to shame you. That is not. But, but because there's still time, there's still an opportunity to turn from these things that are leading you down a path of destruction. And anyone who has who's raised kids or um, has worked with kids um, I've had the privilege and the blessing and opportunity and challenge to do both. You know, I've spent uh, the majority of my adult ministry as a youth pastor, and God's blessed us with, with two kids of our own. And, and so um, if you raise kids or if you work with kids, you know that one of the hardest parts about parenting, one of the hardest parts about teaching students is discipline, is learning how to discipline in a healthy way. Right? Not just discipline, because so often um, when we discipline, sometimes we discipline out of frustration. You know, sometimes we're just, we're just tired, we're impatient, we're frustrated, and it's out of those negative emotions that we, we discipline, and that creates a very negative, unhealthy association in the kids' minds, right? Because all they experience is the anger, all they experience is, is the feelings of failure, and, and, and when that is what's connected with the discipline, then that's how they're going to feel. Sometimes we discipline out of, um, out of hurt. You know, our kids can hurt us. Um, the kids that we care about and teach, they can sometimes hurt us, and sometimes we discipline in almost a retaliatory way. We, we don't realize we're doing it. We don't think about it. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going through this because I've had my fair share of failures in this area. And sometimes we discipline just out of inconvenience, like, you know, um, the way you're acting or behaving or speaking is just inconvenient to what I'm trying to do. And so, so, so one of the hardest things you can try to do, you can undertake as, as a parent or a teacher, is healthy, uh, life-giving discipline. Um, and we know that 
um, that true discipline, as Scripture talks about our Father, right? That God the Father, he disciplines those whom he loves. And he disciplines, as Paul says here, not to shame, not to humiliate, not to just, you know, put undue burden on, but out of love, to warn, to caution. And when we discipline, we, we do it with the, with the goal of smoothing away, of, of chipping away sometimes uh, the, the behaviors or the, 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 the habits that we know will one day cause our children harm or, or, or cause them to cause someone else harm, right? And if you've had kids, or if you have kids, and you're honest with yourself, you, you know that, that you also hold your children to a higher standard than everyone else's kids, right? Um, like, uh, so I've, I've, I've been, I've had the opportunity for the past few months to do a lot of substitute teaching in, in a couple of different schools. And, um, and so I'm, I'm around a lot of kids. <laughs> and there's a lot of things that I see and that I hear them doing. Um, and I'm like, well, that's not my kid. You know, I care about them. I want good things for them. Um, I'm hoping to, do, to be as positive an influence in their lives as I can. But at the end of the day, you know, they're not my kid. Um, and, uh, and there have been times in youth ministry where, where students will show up to youth group or to an event or to something, and they are dressed in a way that I'm like, I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know what you thought you were preparing for, uh, but it wasn't church. <laughs> um, and, and when that happens, um, the way I would approach that student is very different from the way I would approach my own, because if my child showed up to youth group <laughs> Um, dressed in some of, or, 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 or speaking in some of the ways that I hear somebody say, I mean, it would be bad for them, right? It would, the way I treat and discipline my, my children, if, if I'm at a restaurant and, and someone's kid is, you know, and I don't mean, again, this is to shame no one, okay? We're all, we're all, this is, parenting's hard, okay? But um, if I'm in a restaurant, if I'm somewhere in public and, and someone's kid is just, just, just acting a fool, they're just being belligerent, they're just being disrespectful, they're just doing all kinds of things, all right, um, I might have to, have to say a prayer that God would guard my heart, but, um, but ultimately, I'm not going to, it would be inappropriate for me to go over to their table and discipline their child for them, to be like, hey, you better act up or you're going to get it when you get home. I mean, that would be very, that, that, that would be out of line. But when it's my child, God has called parents not just to birth children and make sure they survive childhood, <laughs> it's a big part of it, uh, but to discipline them, to teach them. And it's hard. It's one of the hardest things you can do as a parent, to do that in a way that, as Scripture says, does not provoke anger in your children, but 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 feeds life and truth into them. And so if it's my child, um, then it's very different. Um, then I'm going to hold them to a higher standard. I'm going to challenge them on the things that I know later on in life. It's not, it's not because you're embarrassing me. It's not because you're inconveniencing me. It's because I know that, it, that if this behavior doesn't change in your life, it's going to lead to bad things either for you or for those around you. And so that is, I say all that to say that that is the heart that I believe Paul has when he writes these words. Um, he's not worried about everyone else. I mean, he kind of is, but he's super concerned about this church. 
about the Corinthian church. He says, I, you, you could have all kinds of teachers, and that's great, you should. You can have all kinds of people who would, who would tell you truth, who would speak from the word to you, but I am your spiritual father. I, by, by the grace of God, I'm the one that, that, that led you to the Lord, and so you have a special place in my heart. And so um, that is the heart of Paul over the next few passages for the Corinthians, and it mirrors the heart of God for us. And that's what we need to grasp and take a hold of. As much as that is true of how Paul writes to the Corinthians, it is, it is merely a reflection, um, a shadow of the heart that God has for each of us. And so, he, so God is the one who's really writing these things. He's the one who's inspiring and moving Paul to write these things. Um, he knows that over 2,000 years after they're written, his people will still be dealing with some of these same issues and need to be confronted with the same truths. And so often, like I said at, at at the beginning, we read them and we think, why is God being so harsh? Why is he so mean and judgmental? Most children feel that way when they're being disciplined. Um, but as we grow older and we mature and we reflect, we realize all that was done in love. And, and I wouldn't be the person I am now if it weren't for that. So I just want that to be like what hovers over our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're going to be just in chapter 5. We're going to spend um, probably a, a disproportionate amount of time in the first two verses, just because that's kind of setting the, um, the stage. You know, uh, Paul is going to be addressing a very specific issue. And then the verses that follow, we're probably going to go through a little bit, a little bit more, more quickly, just because um, the, the, the issue has been established. Okay. Um, so just adds up there. Okay. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, uh, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And so we can, we can read that and in reading that we can feel the shock and the disgust in Paul's tone even if we can't hear it. He's like, there's this is actually what I'm hearing. I can't believe that this is what I'm hearing about you. When, when, when I planted you, when I established you, you know, this, this, these aren't the things that you were taught. Um, and so, again, we hear not just disappointment in Paul. I think we hear heartache. He says, I can't believe, as is actually reported, that there is uh, this kind of immorality um, among you, the word for sexual immorality here is the Greek word porneia. And obviously, uh, that is where we get the word pornography. So he says, it is reported that there is porneia in the church among you. And the kind of porneia that even the rest of the world acknowledges is wrong. Even the rest of the pagan world um, is disgusted by, he says, um, and so this word, porneia, it can be used for any kind of sexual activity, um, um, any kind of sexual activity that exploits another human being for your own personal pleasure, any kind of sexual activity that deviates from God's original design uh, for sex. Um, and so uh, we're going to land here for a minute because Paul recognizes something uh, that, that the history and even science we're going to see uh, bears to be true. First of all, the, the, the young Corinthian church is at a critical uh, junction point in their growth. They haven't been around that long. 
Okay? Um, and as they're growing, as they're being uh, affected and influenced by the rest of the world, they're already compromising. They're already allowing uh, behaviors to, to not just be present in, in their midst, but to be celebrated in their midst. And so Paul's desperation to steer them away from the precipice of compromise is appropriate. Um, we understand um, from Scripture, right, that, that uh, because we, we, we say it all the time, right? like there's, there's, no, there's no degrees of sin, right? It's not like one sin is worse than the other. We say that. We read in the Scripture. Uh, scripture says that if you keep the whole law but stumble in just one point, if you, if, if you only sin in one area and you keep the rest of the law, it's as if you stumbled in all of it. All sin is sin in God's eyes, right? We understand that, so I'm not, I'm not contradicting that. But Scripture itself testifies, and Paul himself will testify a couple chapters later, um, that there is, there is something about sexual sin in particular that can take a hold and take root of the believer's heart and mind and life and spread to the whole church. He says in chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality, same word, porneia, flee porneia. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits porneia, sexual immorality, sins against his own body. And so sexual sin has a particular corrupting influence in the life of a believer. Um, it would be interesting and fascinating if it weren't also terrifying the neurological effect that something like porn has on the mind of a human being. Um, I thought I could maybe describe that to you guys, but I realized I'm not smart enough to. <laughs> um, I've, I've sat through studies uh, on it, I've read about it, and I thought, well, I'll just read from, from, from a book because it'll be better than me trying to describe it to you. So um, I just want to read briefly, and there's all kinds of books about this, there's all kinds of studies about this, but not just the effect of just porn, okay, but how... Um, uh, Sexual stimulus affects the human brain and, and, and creates new neurological pathways that become addiction, okay? Um, so it says, um, why does porn prove time and again to be so significantly influential on the brain? And, and just, just a little bit of a disclaimer, this, this study has a disclaimer itself that the majority of research on this has been done on the male brain, like just men. Very little has been done on how it affects the female brain. We know it does, uh, but they made assumptions at, at the beginning that it would be the same. And what they're discovering now is that women are exposed to and pursue porn almost at the same rate as men do, but it affects them differently. And so those studies are still being developed. So this one is primarily focused on the male brain, um, and it's not a pretty picture either way. It's not like one's better than the other. Um, uh, William Struthers, author of Wired for Intimacy, introduces an apt metaphor. He says that pornographic content is like a high-definition signal, and the male brain is a perfectly built and tuned HD receiver wired to be on alert. The depiction of nudity, and so this is not just, this is not just you know, going to explicit websites. There's plenty of movies and TV shows that we watch. So, we, you know, 
depending on how you define porneia, is not just what we might, what, what culture brands hardcore pornography. Anything that is, that is, um, that is produced for the purpose of, a, of, of, of inviting sexual arousal, okay? It could be anything, clothes on or off. I don't mean to get explicit, but um, anything that, that is, is intended to induce sexual arousal, scripture would say porneia, sexual immorality. So those depictions, the, the depiction of nudity and sexual acts have a hypnotic, transfixing effect, much like an HD television. Um, when men fixate on porn, the repeated and extended exposure creates neural pathways. Over time, a habit forms. From a neurological perspective, humans don't unlearn habits. Once a neural pathway is formed, it stays in the brain until a new and different pathway replaces it. According to Struthers, the guy who did the study, this is what I found to be, like I said, it, it would be interesting if it weren't so scary. 50% of human brain activity is dedicated to the reception and interpretation of visual stimuli. 50% of the activity of our brains is dedicated to, to receiving and understanding visual stimuli. Sexual stimulation, in particular, causes the male limbic system, the, I can't pronounce this word, Again, and I'm not smart enough to do some of this. Some of you can. Um, different organs in the, the, the male brain and, um, and other brain stem structures uh, in charge of emotion to fire at the same time. Like our brains just, just, just light up. All the parts that deal with, with emotion and, and with excitement, they just, they just light up. When one engages with porn, the, the pleasure center of the brain is, is flooded with dopamine, which activates the same receptors uh, as opioids. It activates the same receptors as addictive drugs. The result is that engaging with porn can become incredibly addictive. No surprise there. What, what really kind of caught my, my eye was that, meanwhile, the prefrontal cortex checks out. And the prefrontal cortex is a part of the brain where rational judgment is decided, where rational decision-making is done. So the picture there is repeated exposure to porneia of any kind. Um, it literally, neurologically, shuts down rational decision-making and lights up all the parts of our brains that addictive substances are intended to to, to take hold of, and it creates a new neurological pathway in our brains where we are conditioned to, to pursue that regularly. It becomes normal, it becomes acceptable, it becomes the way our bodies now function. And to break that functioning is not as simple as just saying, well, I'm gonna stop doing it. You have to replace it with a new neurological pathway, a new way of functioning. And so I don't think, you know, I'm not saying that that Paul had all that in mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6 that, you know, uh, that sexual sin is, is sin that we do against our own bodies. I'm not sure that Paul would have had that language, but in my, in my opinion, it's yet another example of science confirming what Scripture has been telling us for over 2,000 years. Yes, in God's eyes, sin is sin, and, 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 and we should not elevate sexual sin as being like the epitome of it because it's not. We're going to see 
that it's really a symptom of a deeper issue, okay? But sexual sin is different in that it enslaves. It easily enslaves. All sin can enslave. But sexual sin in particular easily takes hold, easily sinks into our minds and into our hearts, and it drags us into bondage, and it so easily replaces Jesus as the chief pursuit of our lives. And that's the point. All, all those things I just read, if you've spoken to anyone who, who has lived through or is living through addiction, they will tell you, this has become the chief pursuit of my life. I can't function without it. Everything I do is so that I can, is so I can get there again, get to that high, get to that place, get whatever it is, all of it, I'm living for that moment. And that is how sexual sin reprograms our minds. Okay? Um, so, uh, it's an all, it can become... Something that God created originally for our enjoyment and something that God created originally as, as a picture of our future eternal fellowship with him can also become a trap. It can become an addiction. It can become an all-consuming obsession, like I said, that replaces Jesus himself. And so by the revelation of the Spirit, Paul understands at least a portion of this. And as a loving parent, he has to intervene. Okay, so he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. The observation that not even the surrounding pagan culture would approve of this affair is, is, is no overstatement, okay? And, and, and it's worth, it's worth uh, looking into. Uh, Greco-Roman culture um, is infamous for... For, uh, for how indulgent their sexual culture was, especially when it came to how and with whom you were allowed to pursue uh, sexual pleasure. Free, free men, free Roman citizens in particular, were granted all kinds of leeway when it came to who they could pursue um, intimacy with. Not only was it acceptable, it was actually expected. So I'm going to go into this just so you can understand Paul's statement not even the pagans are okay with this. And that's not to lift the pagans up because their view of sexuality was pretty depraved. If you were a, a freed Roman male citizen, not only were you allowed and, and it was acceptable for you to, but you were expected, okay, not just to have your wife, um, but to have concubines or female slaves um, that you could also pursue pleasure with. And also... Um, to make frequent use of the brothels and the prostitutes uh, for sexual intimacy as well. And you could do all those things um, and still be considered a virtuous, upstanding, moral citizen in Greco-Roman culture. In fact, um, the, uh, and, and Paul's going to address this issue later in chapter 6 when, when he's, um, he's addressing the question of celibacy and the, the Corinthians are going to they, they, they wrote him a letter before this, and Paul says, now, now concerning the things that you were asking about, and he quotes them, he says, you know, it is not good for a man to touch a woman, you know, and, um, and sometimes we read that passage in our 21st century Western context, and we interpret it in light of that, but what we miss out on is that in that time, in that culture, um, if you were married, it was considered... It was considered almost immoral uh, to use intimacy with your wife 
for anything other than procreation. It's uh, kind of backwards, right? Um, the idea was you married a respectable woman to bring up respectable heirs, and you went to your concubines, slaves, or prostitutes just for pleasure. If you were to sleep with your wife just for pleasure's sake, then you were like, that's when you look down, that, that, that's when the rest of the culture would, 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 would then look down on you. It's, it's so backwards. Um, some, uh, some 400 years before Paul's time, there was this common proverb in, in the Persian culture, and it carried over into this culture. Um, it said, um, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. Okay, so that is the culture that Paul's writing to. So when we get to chapter six and they're asking Paul about, you know, should we even continue to, to be intimate? They're, what they're asking is, hey, if what you're telling us about Jesus coming back is true, we shouldn't bring up any more children. And Paul's going to tell them, yeah, but you sleeping around with prostitutes and concubines isn't any better. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, you, you, let, he says, let every man have his wife. You know, he says, I, I wish you could be as I am because Paul, as far as we know, was unmarried. He was celibate. And he's like, yeah, it would be great if you could be celibate. But because of sexual immorality, because of porneia, have your wife. Don't be going around with all these other women because you think that's somehow more noble. Okay, so... That's in chapter six. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So um, in chapter five, like I said in verse one, he says, um, again, not even the Gentiles who practice these things approve of what you're doing, and it's in the church. And indeed, it was illegal in Roman culture uh, to, to marry your father's wife. And in the context here, it seems like, like there was a Christian man uh, whose, whose biological mother had maybe passed away and his father had remarried and his father had passed away and so he decides to marry his father's wife. And in Roman culture, that, that was actually punishable by imprisonment, if not death. Um, and here the church is, Paul says, not only are you tolerating it, we're gonna read, but you're actually proud of it. You're bragging about it. You are, you are glorying in it. Okay, so all of this, Again, um, not so that we can think highly of, of Rome because their moral compass was just as depraved, but how tragic a place it is when the church finds itself um, so corrupted by immorality that even, even the rest of the world condemns it. We, when we get to that place where we are corrupted beyond the call to holiness, beyond the call where God has set us apart from those things. So Paul says in verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And so we might, we might rightly share in Paul's disgust. We might rightly read this and, and balk at it as, as he does um, until we remember, as Pastor Victor always reminds us, that when we read Scripture, Scripture is like looking into a mirror, and we are meant to look at it as if looking into a mirror, and it reflects back to us the things that God is saying to us. And maybe in this situation, it's not reflecting back to us um, the, the tolerance of porneia. Maybe it is. But more so than that, I believe that it is reflecting back to us the dangers of pride. The dangers of pride 
um, of religious pride, of pride in our freedoms, of pride in our, um, in our doctrines, of pride in whatever it is. Pride is what sets the stage. Pride is what tills the soil to allow sin and to allow porneia to grow in the first place. One of the points I want to make, and I'll make it again later, is that the sexual immorality was not the issue. It was a symptom of a deeper issue. Paul points it out twice. He says, you're puffed up in verse 2. In verse 6, he says, you are glorying in this. To glory in something in the context is to rejoice in it, to brag about it, to feel like I have reason to boast. And so Paul is saying, it's not bad enough that you're allowing this and you're not addressing it, but you're actually bragging about it. You actually feel proud. Your hearts are puffed up. the, the, The image of being puffed up I find to be um, very effective, right? Um, And the image I always get is of like a little puffer fish, you know? Like you see a puffer fish and they're not remarkable. You wouldn't even know what they are, but they got these big bulging eyes, right? And and they're, they're not scary to look at. They're not impressive. And again, I'm not smart enough to know. I don't know if they do this when they're afraid or when they're trying to attract a mate or what the whole deal is. But for some reason, they will, they will puff up, right? And when they puff up, then they're impressive. Then they are drawing attention to something about their features that they're either trying to scare something away or draw something in. They, they, they become puffed up. Um, even in saying puffed up, like I feel my posture straighten, you know, and you kind of puff out your chest. And if you ever like seeing guys coming out of the gym and, um, you know, some of them do it naturally. I've always admired Rick because he's just a natural puff. Um, but, uh, but some guys, you know, um, they're just like, oh, you know, they puff out their chest and they, they suck in their gut. That's getting harder and harder for me to do as I get older. Um, and because why? Because they want to draw attention to look, look at this, you know, look at the breadth of what I'm doing. And so uh, the, the image of being puffed up, uh, drawing attention to the parts of you that you want everyone else to admire and minimizing the parts of you that you'd rather hide. You know, no, one, no one's walking around like puffing out their gut un, like, intentionally, right? In our image conscious, image obsessed culture, no one's doing that. Um, uh, we, we, we puff up the things that we want other people to notice and admire. And Paul's saying, you are puffed up about this. You want, you want people to notice that you, that, like, hey, look how accepting we are. Look how mature we are. Look how progressive as, as a church we are, that we've, we're not only allowing this, we're celebrating it. And Paul's like, shouldn't you rather mourn? He says, uh, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. Um, where's the repentance? The parts of ourselves that we would rather hide, those are the parts that we mourn over, right? How can I change this? How can I adjust this? How can I do whatever? And the Paul's saying, but, but there's, there's no repentance here. There's no mourning. It's just pride. Um, so the Corinthians weren't even trying to hide this embarrassment. There was no mourning or seeking repentance. It seems... They wanted everyone to see how tolerant they were by allowing an ungodly relationship in their midst. So somehow, religious pride has blinded them to um, something, that, something that they should have been embarrassed by, something, something that they should have been repentant over, um, and instead has led them into self-deception. And sin and pride will always puff us up. Um, again, it's not, it's not just the sexual immorality. 
If pride was not an issue in the church, there would have been no room for sexual immorality to grow and to fester. Okay? And that's the point that Paul is making, is that pride has produced fertile soil for not just sexual immorality, but any kind of immorality, any kind of unrepentant, sinful lifestyle, whether it's greed, whether it's covetousness, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's gossip, whatever it is, pride is what tills the soil and allows those things to grow. Um, Again, we know that in God's eyes, all sin is sin, but there's this passage I always come back to in Proverbs 6, where God goes out of his way to say, here are the things I really hate. And you would think when, when the Bible says, here are the things God hates, you would think it would be like, you know, sin, and that's it. <laughs> um, he does hate sin, but he says, here's six of them. Actually, there's seven. That, that's a Hebrew poetic um, thing that they do. And at the top of that list, if you go and look in Proverbs 6, I think it's verse 16, the top of that list is pride. Pride will keep us so far from the throne of grace. Pride will... Pride will, will grow until it replaces God's word as, a, as the authority in our lives and in our faith. Pride will always puff us up. Whether it's pride in our maturity, pride in our freedom, um, there are Christians out there and there are even churches out there who have come to the place in their pride where they will say, I don't care what the Bible says about this issue anymore. This is what I believe, and I believe that I can still call myself a Christian and reject this part of Scripture. Okay, that comes from pride. Um, the immorality is merely the symptom. So, so if immorality is a symptom and pride is the disease, Paul is about to uh, give them the, the prescription. He says in verse 3, For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So again, read this, read these words, not as Paul coming in like heavy handed and just, you know, uh, condemning everyone. He's coming in as that paternal figure, as a loving father, and saying, here's what you need to do. And when he says that I am with you, you know, in, in spirit, even though I'm physically absent, the, 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 the seal of the letter that he sent in that time, and really even in this time, when, when, when you sign a document, legally that document, you're saying this document carries my approval and my authority. Wherever this document is read or presented, if my signature is on it, it's as if I am there physically lending my approval to whatever's happening, right? So that's what Paul is saying, that when this letter is read in your midst, when it's presented to the church, uh, it carries my seal with it. It's as if I am there with you, even though I'm far from you physically. In spirit, my approval and my authority is there. And more importantly, the approval and the authority of the Lord Jesus is there as well. So there is something about uh, the community of Christian fellowship, that serves as, it serves in a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it serves as, as, as a hedge of protection. There is, um, there is community. There is, uh, you know, if you ever watched like some of the old National Geographic things where, where they're talking about animals and like animals in a herd, right? And when there's danger, the herd like circles up 
The herd protects its own. And it's easier for a predator to pick off one lone animal who's, who, who's, who's off on its own than it is for a predator to, to attack a whole herd. And so um, there is protection within the community of faith. And there is blessing within the community of faith. And there is sweetness. There is enjoyment. I believe, church, I believe, beloved church, that when we are truly in real fellowship with each other, not just getting together, I mean, that's important, but, but when, when our hearts are united, when we are worshiping Jesus as one, when we are loving each other and caring for each other, I believe there is a glimpse, the slightest glimpse of what eternity is going to be like, and it is sweet. It is sweet. If you've ever done um, camp ministry or, or youth ministry and you take a bunch of kids off on a mission trip or to a summer camp, and for a whole week, they have no choice. There's no choice. Um, you can't go get on your phone. You can't go read your book. You can't go just unplug from everything everyone else. You have to be engaged. You have to be face-to-face with other people, and you're doing activities, and you're serving other people. Um, there is a sweetness to that. And over and over again, when I experience that with youth, at the end of that time, when they go back to their lives, they go back to their phones, they go back to everything else, there's almost this I don't want to use the word depression, but there is a sadness that seeps in because we've just tasted something beautiful. We've just tasted something holy with eternal value, and now we're back to the reality of this temporary world, okay? Uh, There is something special about Christian fellowship. And that, that uniqueness can be abused for the kingdom of darkness because when as a church... Within that context, we lend our approval to something, then to, to the world's eyes, Jesus also lends his approval to it. If we, as representatives of Christ, say, this behavior is okay with us, we accept it, and we not only are we going to welcome you in, we're going to approve it and say it's good, we're going to put our stamp of approval on it, then by implication, we're saying Jesus does too. And that's a dangerous place to be. And that's what the church is doing here. And so when Paul says, um, he says uh, in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I want, again, to imagine that picture of a herd, a herd of animals. And how is Satan described in Scripture? As a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And a roaring lion doesn't go after the strongest. He doesn't go after the whole Flock, he goes after the one that's by itself, and Satan is roaming, seeking whom he may devour. And so Paul is saying, if the unrepentant believer, this is important, Paul's going to make this point later, he's not talking about unbelievers. If the unrepentant person who claims to follow Christ, you've, you've claimed Jesus as your Savior, you, you, you've said, I'm going to commit to following Jesus, but you're living in unrepentant sin, Paul says, if that person has turned his back on the authority of God's word, and the mercies of God, and we're going to turn them over to the mercies of the world and the mercies of the prince of this world. And why? Not just as punishment, not just, as, just, to, just, to, not just to get back at them, but he says, for the destruction of the flesh. And Paul doesn't mean the physical form. He's not saying, turn them over to Satan so Satan can kill that person, okay? Um, but remember, in, in Pauline theology, and in New Covenant theology, the flesh is always a picture of what? Sin, right? Of the old sinful self, 
the parts of us that, that, that can't help but live in rebellion against Jesus. And so Paul is saying, remove that blessing of Christian fellowship. Remove that hedge of protection. Remove those glimpses of, of blessed eternity. Remove the approval of Jesus on that behavior. Turn them over to the mercies of the evil one in the world so that they will see the depravity of their actions and so that their sinful rebellious nature, that is what Paul wants to see killed. That is what Paul wants to see done away with. Um, and there's, there's this, this, this trend throughout Scripture that when, um, when, the, when people of God, when the prophets of God come face to face with God's holiness, we read about it all the time. Either it's a vision of the throne room in heaven or, or a messenger of God comes down and and these, these prophets and, and, and priests and whoever, they, they see it, and their first reaction is to, be, is, is to have a heightened awareness of true holiness. And when they have that heightened awareness of true holiness, their reaction is to drop to their knees. And I think about Isaiah, and I think it's Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the, the throne room of God, and he falls down and says, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And as long as we are in this World, as long as we're only looking at each other and our focus is off of God, we can have a pretty high view of ourselves. We can have a pretty lofty view that oh, I'm not such a bad person. I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I can allow myself an indulgence here and an indulgence there. It's not that big of a deal. When we catch a glimpse of God's holiness, scripturally speaking, we cannot escape our own depravity. And it hits us like a brick wall. And, and all of a sudden, we realize how unworthy we are, how sinful we are. And again, not to shame, but to highlight um, the holiness of God and how easy it is for us to numb ourselves to that. When we allow pride to create a breeding ground for immorality, we numb ourselves to the holiness of God. We create an environment where unbelievers can come in and hear maybe good teaching, and, and be greeted by friendly faces, but never encounter the holiness of God. And it's the holiness of God that brings repentance and change. And so, um, so Paul is saying, you know, next time you get together, this person needs to be put out of the fellowship. If they are unrepentant, if they refuse to repent, they need to be turned over to their sin so that they can be reminded <laughs> of the goodness and the holiness of God. Um, and he says, um, <clears throat> um, for the destruction of the flesh, but that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, is so that this person can be redeemed. And we're not going to turn there, but we, we, we do read in 2 Corinthians, in the second letter of Corinthians that we have in chapter 2, Paul seems to, to bring closure to the situation because apparently uh, the, the Corinthians had followed through with his advice and then they wrote him again saying, okay, we've cast him out, and now he's sorry. What should we do? And Paul's like, forgive him. <laughs> he's supposed to forgive him, right? Again, the whole goal is not just to cast him out, just to punish him, but so that he would receive repentance. And apparently it worked. Uh, and then in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, now, now receive him back. Um, the whole name and vision of our church, our church community, is restore, is restoration, right? Our 
our driving vision, um, as laid out by Pastor Victor and like our founding fathers, um, is to pursue restoration. We cannot offer restoration to each other or to the world if we are entrapped in pride and immorality. So um, we're going to go through the rest of this chapter a little more quickly. Like I said, we spent most of our time in those first few verses. So let's go to chapter, I'm sorry, sorry, verse 6. Paul says, your glorying is not good. We talked about that already. He says, do you not know that a little leaven, leaven is the whole lump. So again, just a li- all it takes is a little bit of sin. Leaven is a picture of sin in, 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 in Scripture. That's why over Passover, they would eat unleavened bread to symbolize purity. And if you, if you read in, if you turn over, Jordan, I'm, I'm going to go here a, a little bit early. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, the very first Passover, the, on the first day of Passover, God says, I want you to purge all the leaven from your homes. He says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your home. So um, uh, I don't know if any of you make bread. Um, my wife makes bread, and it's always good. And I've had to like, leave the room when she makes bread because the aroma is just too much. But sometimes I will have the strength to watch her. And you know, she's putting everything in the little bread maker, and she puts just, just the smallest amount of yeast. Right? It doesn't take a whole lot of yeast. You have this huge lump of dough, and they even sell yeast in these small packets. And you're like, what, the whole packets for a whole... Um, but it, it spreads to the whole lump um, super quickly and super easily as a picture of how sin so easily and quickly... It starts with something small, and you think, what's the big deal? You can't, you, you, you can't even notice it. And next thing you know, it has spread to your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole body, the whole community of the saints. Um, have you guys ever had uh, Amish friendship bread? I don't know why they call it friendship bread. <laughs> every, time, every time that season comes around, like we, we don't need any more. We can be friends without friendship bread. But the, 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 the fascinating thing about, about Amish friendship bread is, is how it grows. You've put a little bit of the ingredients, and again, I'm no expert at this. I actually tried to go to a website so I could figure it out, so I could speak to it today more, more co- coherently. And on this website, they were like, make sure you, you love your starter, and when it starts to grow, make sure you name it. And I was like, that's when I knew I was at the wrong site. Okay, I mean, this is not, if you're naming your bread, I don't know what to tell you. Um, but anyways... It's, it's fascinating how this works. You just dump in a little bit of the ingredients and, and, and you can't do anything with it for 10 days. And after 10 days, you're supposed to feed it like it's a pet, you know, and then it grows and then you can give it to other people and then they feed it and then it spreads and grows and grows. And, and again, when it, as long as it's just bread, it's really cool. But, but scripture uses that, again, as, as, a, as a very tangible example of how easily sin spreads. The, the, the more you feed that sin the more it grows. And then you share it with others because they tolerate it and they accept it. And then it, it, it permeates their lives, okay? And so this, this, this picture of, of leaven, Paul is saying, purge out the leaven. He says, your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, just like they did in, at the first Passover. They, they would get rid of all the leaven in their homes because they were about to observe a very pure ritual, where for seven days they were going to eat unleavened bread, um, a symbol of uncontaminated bread, pure bread. And, 
and observe Passover and consume the Passover lamb and the blood of that Passover lamb would symbolically purify them and purge away their sin and, and prepare them so that when the wrath of God comes, it passes over them because the blood of the lamb, because of the re- rejection of the leaven, they've rejected sin, they've embraced the blood of Christ, okay? Um, that is the picture that Paul is appealing to here. He says that you may be a new lump. You're not an old lump with old leaven still um, still fermenting, still contaminating. You are something new. You are a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, that's a call to identity. That is not a call to works. Paul is saying you truly are unleavened. You are already pure. You are already holy because of Jesus. In Jesus, you are. Um, you don't have to try in Christ. You, he says, you are, you are all, he says, you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let's continue to consume Jesus. Let's continue to allow his blood to, 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 to redirect the wrath of God away from us. Um, let, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So Paul could be talking about a prior letter, or he could be talking about what he just wrote. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. And so Paul is saying, Um, uh, Being set apart from the world does not mean we avoid those who are in or of the world. He's saying, you know, I'm telling you to withdraw fellowship from an unrepentant believer, an unrepentant Christian, but you don't apply that same principle to those who are unbelievers. How then can we possibly be salt and light if we are not um, among them? if we are not around them, if we're not in the world, if we're not encountering people, if we're not doing what Jesus did when he would go to their homes and sit and eat with them. Jesus calls us, he says, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt preserves. Um, You are the light of the world. Light shines light on, on the way. Jesus says he is the way. So as believers, we are to be salt and light. We we have a, uh, a preserving presence because of Christ in us. We have a life-giving presence because of Christ in us that the world desperately needs. We are preserving agents. We can shine light on Christ. He is the way. How can we do that if we're going to avoid? There's, there's, there's a whole movement in, in the Christian church that, that is the opposite. So like on the one hand, Paul is saying, you can't tolerate pride and immorality that's one extreme. The other extreme is, but you also can't completely separate yourselves from unbelievers. So the, the solution to the first issue isn't withdrawal. If you withdraw, how can you be salt and light? Paul is saying, you, you have to encounter those people. Um, I'm, I'm just talking about those, who, again, who, who are in the church, who claim to be of Christ. Um, he says in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And so Paul is saying, look, it is not the role of the church to judge those who are outside of the church. This is a huge stumbling block in the movement of the gospel in our world today. Is as believers, when we 
try to hold unbelievers to the same standards that, the, that we only keep because of the Holy Spirit. And we expect people without the Spirit to keep those same standards. Paul says here, look, God is going to judge the unbeliever. It is not our job to pass judgment on the unbeliever. It's our job to be salt and light to them and then let God be the one who passes, who passes judgment ultimately. God has, in his wisdom and for his purposes, ordained the, the body of believers, empowered the body of believers to act as his, as his agents of judgment in certain scenarios for those inside the church. So, so Paul is just reiterating this, this point. Um, this idea, this theme of, of judgment and judging and who you judge and how you judge, that's going to carry over into chapter 6, which we're not going to get into this morning. But for now, um, let us receive Paul's paternal, loving discipline into our own lives and the life of our church. Because I believe that Paul's paternal, loving discipline, again, is a mirror of God's paternal, loving discipline. So we have an opportunity to, to receive that, not just personally, but into the community of our church here this morning. Is there um, a root of pride in our lives as individuals or our life as a church? Is there a root of pride that feeds sin, that creates fertile ground for sin to fester? Are there surface symptoms of sin that we've just grown too comfortable with? That's Again, you cannot be comfortable with sin and also be in the presence of God's holiness. We see from Scripture it's impossible. Are there symptoms of sin in our lives that we have just grown comfortable with? We're saying, well, it's there, and we're not going to worry about addressing it. Um, we cannot, like I said before, um, offering restoration to each other or to the world uh, it's going to be impossible if either of those two things is the case. So um, let's bring these things, these things to the Lord. Uh, continually, daily, regularly pray that, that he would grant us wisdom, that he would grant us discernment, um, not only to see the symptoms, um, but also to see the deeper roots and to, and to uproot that pride that can easily take root in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, uh, you are... You're so gentle with us. Lord, you are, um, you are long-suffering. You, you, know, you, you know our frames better than we do sometimes, and, and, um, and even the things about ourselves that we don't want to admit, the things about ourselves that we don't want to believe about ourselves, Lord, you know those. Uh, and yet still, you speak to us gently. Still, you call us uh, to repentance. Still, you offer us uh, the gift of holiness and the gift of your Son. Lord, sin is ever at our door. Temptation is always knocking on the frames of our hearts and of our minds. Father, I pray against the pride that would blind us to those things, that would take root and, um, and pull us away from you. Father, would you dig those things out? Father, for those areas of our lives where, where maybe we have grown too comfortable with sin, Lord, would you make us uncomfortable? Would you uh, perhaps grant us a glimpse of your holiness, remind us who you are, and remind us who you've called us to be in Christ? I pray that no immorality would be able to stand in the presence of your holiness. 
Father, would you give us a heart for the lost? Would you remind us, Father, that, um, that we are on a mission for your kingdom? We're not here in this life just to waste time, just to live and make money and die. Uh, but we are here to be preserving agents. We are here to be salt. We're here to be light, Father. Would you empower us for that? Would you uh, convict us when we, when we cast that calling aside? Father, in all these things, Lord, we long to see your glory. We long to see your name lifted up, Father. Would you, would you grant it to be so? Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.